when I started that research, like you, I was a little surprised about how willing people were to talk about their regrets. You know, one obvious caution here is we don't know if people are willing to talk about all their regrets. I'm happy to talk about some of them, but there may be ones that they're hiding from us. Psychologist. 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 Professor Tom Gilovich. Professor Thomas Gilovich. And do we regret the things we did more or less than the things we didn't do? Well, that's the great question because there's an interesting. People are told always go with your first instinct. It's not good to switch answers, but you're actually more likely to get it right if you switch answers. But people believe counterfactual thinking that we react to events not only for what they are, but for what they could have been or might have been. If you ask people later in life, what are your biggest regrets? The things that come up most readily in their minds are Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew. We talk health, we talk well-being and self-improvement and motivation with a little bit of science thrown in here every Monday and Thursday. Almost, what, 380 episodes, I think, at this point. And uh, if you're new to the podcast, please do like, subscribe, share with at least one other person who you think might get value from tuning in in this new year. And if you really feel the urge, do leave the podcast a positive review. It'll take you two seconds and you can leave me, what, three, four or even five stars, as many of you have already done to date. And thank you for having done so. A reminder, we're also on YouTube and on Instagram if you want to become subscribers over there too. If you feel the urge to view the videos of these episodes to give you a, a different insight possibly in what we're doing here. Now, today I'm joined by Thomas Gilovich. He is the Irene Blecker Rosenfeld Professor of Psychology at Cornell University. His work in social psychology includes the key textbook in the field, How We Know What Isn't So, and has written many books that touch on topics such as behavioural economics and the fallibility of human reason. In this episode, we talk about the subject of regret and the impact hindsight has on our making judgments. We explore the relationship between beliefs, emotions and judgments. We ask why people are cautious in the light of a potentially positive outcome. Why do people overstate their abilities and where does this overconfidence come from? We explore the subject of biases and we ask how we can become better thinkers and decision makers. Well, can we start by talking, first of all, about regret? I know you've done a lot of work and research on this particular area and talk being the operative word, simply because it seems that people are very happy to talk about their regrets which kind of seems counterintuitive given that regret is a source of their pain. So why do you think this is the case? Why are people so happy to talk about regrets? Uh, you know, I think part of the talking about them is uh, coming to grips with them. Part of our life story, uh, not necessarily the uh, most pleasant or productive part. Uh, there's pain associated there, but the thing we want to get past and talking about it helps with that. It helps with uh, identifying some silver linings, perhaps getting helpful feedback from other people or compassion from other people makes us feel better about them. So 
when I started that research, like you, I was a little surprised about how willing people were to uh, talk about their regrets. Um, you know, one obvious caution here is we don't know if people are willing to talk about all their regrets. Uh, they're t happy to talk about some of them, but there may be ones that they're hiding from us. Of course, can't know that. Uh, you can try to get around that by having people answer um, true or false or rating scale kinds of questions and assure them anonymity. Uh, and those responses are consistent with what they are willing to tell us. So it means that even if there are some hidden regrets on the part of some people. There aren't many. It's kind of surprising. And do we regret the things we did more or less than the things we didn't do? Well, that's the great question, uh, because there's an interesting tension there. In the immediate aftermath of something going wrong, we regret the things that we did. Action regrets hurt more than inaction regrets, because it's so easy to imagine not having taken the action that uh, led to the bad result. I'm a professor, and so it's easiest to come up with examples in the classroom. And one person who's ever been a student and had to take multiple choice uh, tests can relate to this. You're taking an exam. Let's say you're doing very well. Zip it along on question 20. You put, oh, that's C. You fill in the little bubble sheet indicating that's your answer, C. And you move on to the next few questions, but then a little voice goes on in your head saying, Wait a minute, um, number 20 back then, maybe it was A, I think it was A. Oh, I don't know, it's C, it's A, and you're in a dilemma. And people are told, always go with your first instinct. Uh, it's not good to switch answers. Actually, you're in a bad situation there if you now can't decide between the two. And you're probably going to, the chances of getting it right aren't as good as all the other ones. But you're actually more likely to get it right if you switch answers. But people believe the exact opposite. And the reason for that is this idea of we're regretting action more. If you if the right answer was C and you switch to A and you later found out uh, it's C, you kick yourself going, oh man, I had the right answer. Why did I switch? If in fact the right answer is A and you think about it and go, no, I'm sticking with C, that'll bother you too, but not nearly as much. So and and that applies not just to multiple choice tests. If you owned stock and you had stock in Apple computer in the year 2000. Um, and you said, no, Apple's in a death spiral. Let me invest in, and you come up with some other investment. That's, you're, you're, you're going to kick yourself for the rest of your life. I mean, Apple stock just took off there, switching and leading to a bad outcome. Uh, hurts more than, let's say you own some other stock and you're thinking, you know what? Apple, I always liked Apple. Maybe they'll pull out of this. Nah, I'm not going to do that. A regret of inaction. That bothers you too, uh, but not nearly as much in the short term. Uh, but what's interesting and the thrust behind your question is if you ask people near later in life, what are your biggest regrets? The things that come up most readily in their minds are things that they didn't do. And so the question is, how do we resolve that? Uh, in the here and now, People regret actions more than inaction, but over a lifetime, it's the inactions that have legs that uh, persevere, bother us more. And that's what our research program was about, was A, first of all, discovering that temporal pattern to regret, and then B, figuring out why that is. What is it about the mind that 
bugs us so much about action regrets in the short term and inaction regrets in the long term. Well, regret involves an element of hindsight. I'm curious as to how hindsight then informs our ability then to make judgments today. Well, it's it certainly changes our perspective, and it does so in a number of ways, one of them being that our reasons for not acting often uh, in the here and now seem compelling. Oh, I know I should get up on the dance floor, but, you know, I, I'm worried I'm going to look ridiculous. Or, you know, if I just spend half an hour a day on the piano, I'll be good eventually. Let me just do that. But there are things that keep you from doing that. And in in the here and now, those things are compelling. Oh, God, I'll look ridiculous on the dance floor. Or, I don't have time for this. There are other things I want to do. Those are very compelling. With hindsight, you look back and you think, all of those reasons... Wait, why did I not get up on the dance floor? Why couldn't I devote half? Surely I could find a half an hour every day to practice the piano or learn Arabic or whatever it is. Um, and uh, because they don't, the reasons for not doing it don't seem so compelling, you're bothered more by not doing it. So yeah, the, the things just look different looking back than they do looking at it square in the face and they hear it. Well, switching timeframes again from looking back to looking forward, you wrote a very interesting, fascinating op-ed in the LA Times talking about why people are cautious when they see light at the end of the tunnel. Now, this was written during the pandemic and it was uh, towards the end of the lockdowns that we all endured around the world and uh, when things were returning to some semblance of normality. So I'm curious as to why we are cautious when we see light at the end of that tunnel. Yeah, well, the the broader idea linking that subject, that work on regret with this interesting phenomenon that we saw with the pandemic has to do with what psychologists and philosophers call counterfactual thinking, uh, that we react to events not only for what they are, but for what they could have been or might have been uh, or almost were. And um, if you, uh, you know, are right near on uh, the edge of something um, and things look like, okay, we're going to get out of this. Okay. That's, you really don't want to make any changes at that point because you think, wow, uh, I was this close to safety and uh, why didn't I just stay the course? Um, I think we all recognize this. We see this in literature and in film. So if uh, you're watching film where not the main star, but uh, you know, a secondary, a supporting actor says something like, I'm leaving the police force, uh, or this is my last mission. We as an audience know that that person's probably going to die uh, soon. And uh, why is that? Well, it's the director or screenwriter setting us up for a big emotional hit. Uh, when that character, if it's a liked character, it's going to make the audience sad. It's sadder if he was almost out of harm's way. Oh my gosh, it was his last mission. If only he had done this differently, it wouldn't have happened. The easier it is to imagine an alternative outcome uh, and what happens is bad, the worse it's going to feel. And that idea of counterfactual thinking uh, explains this other phenomenon that uh, we examined quite a number of years ago now uh, in the wake of the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona, Spain, uh, where we looked at the happiness of bronze and silver medalists. And you might expect that silver medalists are happier than bronze medalists. They did better. 
But in fact, it's the opposite. Silver medalists are less happy than bronze medalists. The reason for that is this very phenomenon of counterfactual thinking. A silver medalist can easily think, oh man, if I had just done this differently, I'd be on the gold medal stand. The bronze medalist can imagine that too, but that's harder. They've got to make up two different steps. Uh, and they're only one step away from no medal at all. So the silver medalist is often thinking, ah, oh, almost, whereas the bronze medalist has thoughts more akin to, well, at least, at least I got on the medal stand. And that makes a big difference in how happy they are. I remember reading that research. I didn't realize that it was yourself that was involved, but I, I thought it was uh, very interesting. It, it, it made sense, really. So close yet so far whenever you're a silver medalist, but uh, it, it's the reverse that whenever you're the bronze medalist, you could have ended up with nothing. So it, it absolutely makes sense. Um, if we can move to the subject of polarization of opinion, uh, there's been an awful lot of it in public opinion of late on a whole host of issues around the world. In Ireland at the moment, for example, the subject of immigration is one that's driving people to possess opinions from extreme viewpoints right across the board. I want to know, is there any research that has investigated how to use judgment to lessen the development of extreme views and thus uh, polarization? Yeah, well, I think one of the interesting things there is um, there are a lot of organizations that try to bring people from the different sides in a variety of countries to talk to each other, uh, to try to dampen down this polarization. And the interesting result, time and time again, there are some exceptions, of course, but when you do that, it tends to go pretty well. People on different sides, when they aren't on you know, the demonstration lines, when they aren't manning the barricades, when they sit down and talk to each other, they appreciate their shared humanity and overlaps in their opinion. Uh, and they're surprised by how much they see things similarly and are willing to respect each other's disagreements. So what does that suggest? Um, well, it says at least one thing that I think is really interesting, which is, yes, there is polarization out there. Um, and immigration is a flashpoint, as you do note, and it's it's going to be a big problem we're going to have to face because there's going to be more and more climate refugees. And, you know, rich countries are just going to face a tremendous demand on the part of people wanting to move there. And it doesn't look like we're handling it all that well. It really inflames opinion. But anyway, uh, more broadly, if when people sit down and talk, it tends to go pretty well, that suggests that maybe there's polarization exists, but maybe there's less out there than we expect. And why might that be? Well, what are the voices we hear? We hear the most extreme ones. Uh, social media, people put stuff out there, and the algorithms are designed to send us the most extreme ones. Um, and uh, if it, if you randomly sample people's opinion, you get a very different view than if you sample opinions in the way that social media algorithms lead us to sample them. We, this is reflected in, there's lots of work uh, showing that um, if you uh, look at what people like or share on social media, they tend to favor those, that content that trashes the other side. Oh, those people are really stupid. Rather than, you would think more sensibly, really embraces your own side. You love your ideas, your position. Why don't you want to like and share those things as much as the stuff that trashes the other side? That is true. If you look at the the traffic 
in on social media, you get more outgroup derogation than in-group love. But uh, we did a study where we took different social media point, uh, uh, posts that trash the other side or celebrate your own side and asked people, what we, which of these would you like? Which of these would you share? And they're much more likely to want to um, like and share material that bolsters the inside, uh, the your in-group. And so there's a tension there. The average person isn't as polarizing, doesn't express as much out-group hate as the broader world out there. And why is that? Well, again, a lot of that is the influence either of the most extreme voices, they often have the most followers, so of course they're generating the most traffic, or Russian bots that are designed to, uh, you know, create turmoil in the West. Um, and uh, you take those things away and you get a different picture. Not that polarization doesn't exist, but it's it's much more uh, moderate than it would seem just by going out there and immersing yourselves in the world of Twitter, or the world of Facebook. And that leads me very nicely to my next question. I know you wrote a book with Dale Griffin and Daniel Kahneman called Heuristics and Biases all of 20 years ago. If you were writing a book on biases today, how much would biases reinforced by social media that you referenced there and media in general, how much would that feature in the book today? Well, the biases wouldn't change. That is, um, I, although there's been more work and revealed uh, some other biases that weren't as prominent back then, uh, weren't as widely or as well known. Uh, but the biases remain the same. They're part of the architecture of the brain. But the story in a social media environment is what happens when you take those biases and apply them to this new world of uh abundant information and abundant misinformation. Uh, you know, before there were always things in the world that could mislead that you set these biases loose on that information, you'd get some uh, problematic judgments and decisions. Now you let those biases loose on this information ecosystem where uh, it's so easy to encounter misleading information. Uh, it's just a much more severe problem. It's like biases on steroids, I think, today with social media, uh, certainly. Another one of your books is How We Know What Isn't So and uh, the Fallibility of Human Reason, in which you explore erroneous beliefs like things happening in threes and other various superstitions. Why do we believe in these things when there's little or no evidence to prove that there are actually things happening in threes all around us? Yeah, um, well, a lot of them have to do with, the again, these fundamental ways about how the the mind works and how those fundamental ways in which uh, the mind works interacts with the information ecosystem. What, what is it that the world serves up to us? Um, so for example, I don't remember if we mentioned this in, I mentioned this in the, that book, but um, a lot of people believe things like, oh man, it's amazing how often it always the phone always seems to ring when I'm in the shower. And okay, what is that about? Um, when you're in the shower and the phone rings, that has consequences. Uh, it calls attention to you. Uh, and therefore, all of those things stand out. When you're taking a shower and it doesn't ring, you don't say, oh, I took a shower and the phone didn't ring. That's just a non-event. So when you go back and 
review your life, the times in which you've been in the shower and the phone rang are just much more accessible than the non-events. And we pay much more attention, obviously, as we should, to events than the absence of events. You can see, and, and this effect is really powerful. This is known as the feature positive effect, that uh, we pay attention to features that are there, not their absence. It's hard to notice absences. And it's so extreme, such that uh, I don't have a full beard, but as you can see, I have a goatee. If um, I walked into the classroom one day and I just shaved it off, I taught all semester and shaved it off, people, it's a pretty big change. Something that was there is no longer there. Students wouldn't notice that at all. And my colleagues, if they noticed anything, they would go, something's different. Have you lost weight? You know, they would fail to see this big thing here. If, on the other hand, you start to grow a beard, at first it's not much of a beard. It's just a stubble. People go, hey, you're growing a beard. Adding stuff, the presence of something, even if it's a less dramatic something, just stubble rather than a beard, is noticeable, uh, much more noticeable than the absence. Take that full beard away in one fell swoop. It tends not to be uh, noticed. And so many of our superstitions are that way. This thing happened. Oh, my goodness. Three celebrities died in a short order. See, things happen in threes. Or there was a volcanic eruption in Iceland and a hurricane in Honduras and an earthquake in California. Oh, my God. Uh, they all happened in October. See, things happen in threes. Those things command your attention. The Their absence does not. In the United States, two, three years ago, there were two widely publicized uh, suicides, Anthony Bourdain, the famous chef, and Kate Spade, who was a designer of handbags, very famous. They both committed suicide, both tragic. I'm willing to bet that no one coded that as an absence of three suicides. No one said, hey, there should have been three, and there wasn't. That just never crosses the mind. If there hadn't been a third, that would be further evidence that things happen in threes. Interesting. And just on that point, I'm curious to ask you then, just given what you've mentioned there about people not noticing an, an absence of something, whenever, for example, the government gives somebody a benefit of some description, or for example, they, they increase taxes, whenever people feel that they are less well off as a result of uh, some uh, government intervention, they feel more aggrieved than they would be if they that, that benefit hadn't been there in the first place. So what's happening in that situation when you take something away, then the voters or the electorate notice the, an absence of something? Because that seems then opposite to what you're saying then about your goatee, for example. Yeah, yeah. Well, that has to do with, the, so there's uh, the feature positive effect is about attention, what commands your attention or not. And uh, what you're talking about are in both cases, uh, they those are events that command your attention. Um, but even when they are both pointed out to us, uh, this relates to the phenomenon of loss aversion, negative things, taking something away registers much more than the presence of something. This is just a general negativity bias. You have a show and people write in and there are seven people, go, oh, that was great. You were terrific. You asked the best questions, etc. And uh, one other person goes, eh, you weren't on your game. Uh, you know, you might think about making some changes. When you're falling asleep 
<laughs> that night. It's that one comment that should have provide rather than very true, very uh, true. And that's you know in many ways helpful. Uh, you could imagine why that's adaptive. Uh, focusing on things that are bad gets the mind working to try to make them better. So in a sense, that's a good thing. But it can lead to you know uh, problematic thinking about different kinds of policies. That uh, no, no, we don't need to give people that. Uh, not that important. So we don't make a policy change once it's there, and you try to take it away. Wow, what are you doing? And we saw that in the United States with uh, President Obama's Affordable Care Act, finally trying to get closer to other developed countries and providing uh, health insurance for not everybody, but closer to everybody than we were. There was a lot of opposition to that. But once people got used to it, you try and Trump vowed to take it away, people were up in arms. You can't do that. Or, you know, put it in just more familiar terms. If you're walking down the street and you see $100, that's great. You're happy. If someone's robbed you of $100, that would just be much worse than the pleasure you would get from the extra dollars. Talking again about biases, how can we ensure that we have a healthier relationship with the biases that we develop? And we mentioned earlier about the social media, for example, and the echo chambers that are created as a result of those algorithms that you're talking about. How can we be more aware of and have a healthy relationship with with those echo chambers and with those biases? Yeah, well, I hope any of your listeners won't dismiss this as, of course, the academic is going to say that, uh, but I sincerely believe it's true. This is where education comes in. Uh, uh, there's, you know, we teach people a whole bunch of complicated math kind of early in their school years. Some of that is math they'll never use. Uh, and uh, maybe we ought to be teaching them a little bit more about probability and statistics because we live in a probabilistic, uncertain uh, world and knowing those things truly are helpful. And all of the ways of overcoming these biases are, there's there's a set of techniques for doing that, that, you know, if you think about it, go by the broader rubric of the scientific method. The scientific method was developed, it evolved to overcome these biases. And we know that people can use them. We can develop the habits of mind to recognize them and overcome them. Because that's what scientists do. And we're all scientists in our everyday lives, trying our best to figure stuff out. And uh, if we were taught some of those principles of the scientific uh, method, we, we'd be better off. And I'm absolutely convinced uh, we can do it. You see it when students come in. They're thinking not just about the canned problems in their textbook, but they're thinking about things happening in the world in their news feeds, they think differently about it and better. I've heard you say that many research studies suggest that people tend to be more optimistic and overconfident and as opposed to pessimistic and lacking in confidence about their abilities. But this is at odds with many people's lived experience whose lives are, are burdened by worry and that lack of self-confidence. How is it the case that the research findings are so at odds with uh, people's lived experience? Yeah, love that you chose the word lived experience. When you teach about the literature on overconfidence, that overconfidence is pervasive. You see it everywhere. There's this phenomenon, the better than average effect. If you ask people, 
how good are you compared to your peers on a whole bunch of traits? How good of a leader would you be? How honest are you? How athletic are you? The average person is well above average on almost anything. Not everything, but the overwhelming majority of things you ask them about, how people think they're better than average. The most extreme version of this was a study done uh, on Swedish drivers. Uh, these were people who were in the hospital as a result of motor vehicle accidents. And you ask them, how good a driver are you? And they think that they're, on average, better than average drivers. <laughs> Some of them are right, of course, because they're in the hospital because of someone else's fault. But it can't be the case that the population of people hospitalized for motor vehicle accidents are better than average drivers. But to them, it seems possible. So when you teach about this, there is some resistance because people think, well, I'm not overconfident. Why? Because, well, we live with our, our doubts uh, and our insecurities. The other, I know there are things that I'm confident in, but what commands most of my thinking when I put my head on my pillow at night are all, all the shortcomings. Oh, I should have said this in that podcast, or I should have organized the lecture around that, or... Um, this person seems to have a grudge against me. All of those negative things come out. When you're preparing to do something, uh, I'm not sure this is, I'm not sure I can write about this effectively. Or, uh, you know, I should send this thank you note, but I don't think I'll get it exactly right. So we just, we stew in the, our underconfident moments more. And the confident moments, we just, go and act. And so we don't, they aren't as present in our minds as moments of undercut. Why do you think people seem to be better at um, understanding other people as opposed to themselves? Well, it's, it's interesting because in some ways it's a case of less is more or less information can uh, put you in a better position. Uh, when you're thinking about other people, you're it's easier to think statistically. Uh, that is, oh, what are people like in generally, general? Um, and therefore, in predicting your behavior, I'm thinking, what do people tend to do here? And then therefore, I get a, a pretty strong advantage in making an accurate prediction because what people do in general is, uh, is a fact of the world that may very well apply here, unless there's something exceptional about you. When you try to predict your own behavior, you start to think about all sorts of uh, inner workings of the mind that may not be that predictive of behavior, and you lose sight of the broader base rate statistics. How likely is this thing? Psychologists talk about this uh, not just with respect to the self and other people, but uh, an inside versus outside perspective on, on a problem. What are the details of this case? Um, I think we can do this. And well, um, and you think in terms of scenarios about how this might happen. And the mind is very good at crafting scenarios, and therefore you tend to be overly optimistic. What you need to do is take a broader view and say, well, what percentage of times do these things succeed? This is often illustrated with what's known as the planning fallacy when governments or individuals uh, embark on some big project, a home renovation, or building a, a bridge or a new opera house. We are often way over optimistic in terms of how soon it will get done, how much it will cost. And 
we know time and time again, they go over budget uh, and don't meet the deadline. Nonetheless, when we're predicting a particular project, we think about what are the particularities of this? Who is our contractor? What are How much uh, funding do we have? And so on. From that detailed information, we can see a path whereby this will happen, and therefore we're optimistic. We don't take into account of all the unforeseen things uh, that are different from project to project that come up that make things go over budget and past the deadline. If we just think of the pure statistics of how often those projects unfold that way, we're going to be more accurate. And the final question for you, Professor, how can we become better decision makers and thinkers and, and, and better at making judgments? Well, let's stick with that inside and outside uh, perspective. Phil Tetlock, who's done this work on uh, forecasters, some people are better at forecasting the future than the other. He identifies them and looks at the way they think about things. And most of us who aren't that good at it, we plunge right into a problem and we think in scenario terms. And that leads to one outcome, the best forecasters, they first take a step back. So he has this example where he presents people with a, a description of, a, I think it's an Italian family, it doesn't need to be Italian. Of course, he describes a family and says, what are the chances these, this family owns a cat? Uh, has a cat. And the people who tend not to be that good of forecasters will say, well, let's see, their kids are like uh, 12 and 10. That's just the right age that uh, parents want to get their kids a pet. And so I think the chances are high. The very good forecasters, they'll do some of that thinking too, but they seem to start with, all right, what percentage of families own cats? And that's where they start. And then they'll modify that. Okay, but their kids are 10 and 12. That increases the probability a little bit. So taking an outside view of a problem, any problem you face is one version of that problem that's been faced over and over and over again. And the mind wants to focus on the particular case, and that's good. There's lots of information in the particular case, but we should also think broadly about what is this an instance of and think about that will bring other information to bear that will make us a better uh, predictor, better decision maker. Great advice there. Professor Gilovich, if people want to find out more about your work and your research studies, where can they go? Uh, they can go to my website. Uh, just type in my name and there's a website will come up at, uh, hosted by Cornell University. Um, or they can go to Amazon uh, where my books are listed. And there are many books, so I'll, I'll pop a link to uh, both of those uh, websites in the show notes for this episode. Uh, well, for the moment, thank you so much. Really enjoyed our conversation. Professor Tom Gilovich, thank you. I enjoyed it too. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Habit Podcast. If you're enjoying tuning in and if you're valuing the material we're bringing to you, well then please like, subscribe, share and do leave the podcast a positive rating because it absolutely does help spread the message of the Happy Habit Podcast far and wide. Until next time, stay happy. Mm-hmm.